0: Hi, I'm Ali from Shanghai Chan. If you like our show, why not support it with a small donation? Become a Shanghai patron by donating as little as five dollars a month, and you will get a cool Shanghai branded sticker. For ten dollars, you get one of our amazing Shanghai coffee mugs. Just go to patreon.com/shanghaijohn to sign up. That's patreon. P A T R E O N. dot com slash Shanghai Thanks for your support.
1: Welcome to Shanghai Tan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things china marketing we'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of china experts you can learn more about shanghai john at our website johnstation.com coming to you directly from the city of shanghai i'm bryce witwan and i'm ali kazmi and in today's episode we are taking a break ali from the shanghai lockdown we need a break from this. Uh, not, not that it's stopping, it's just that I'm sick of talking about it. Now in its eighth week, when this episode hits the air, uh, we were just talking to our guests and we expected that it will last until October.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. How do we know it's going to last
1: until October? Our panel of experts uh, chimed in before the show and said that it was going to last until October. <laughs> So it's not worth talking about anymore because, well, maybe we can talk about it in October. We thought we'd take a break from COVID jails, rotten vegetables, and fenced-in communities to talk about something something beautiful. More specifically, China influencer marketing and the China beauty business. We are joined today by two experts. First, we have Lisa Yu, founder and CEO of GenLab Group based in Shanghai. GenLab is a selective brand incubator supporting purpose-led entrepreneurs to complete their global vision. Lisa is a first-generation German-Chinese and former digital transformation head of L'Oreal China. She's also an award-winning brand expert on a mission to reinvent brand building in China and take Chinese brands global. We are also joined, Ali, by Elijah Whaley who is a China expert in influencer marketing and currently VP of marketing at Gainfluence, a company that specializes in the utilization of influencers and celebrities for crypto, NFT, GameFi, and Web3 projects. Elijah has served in a number of startup companies and has lived in China since the good old days of 2014. And I should point out that today's podcast is sponsored by our good friends at Campaign Asia. Lisa, Elijah, welcome to Shanghai Zhan.
2: Thank you for having us.
3: Hi, thank you so much for the intro.
1: And before we get started, we'd like to remind everyone that if you like this show and our previous shows, please go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us that five-star review. So Lisa, let's start off with you. Could you tell us about the brands in GenLab portfolio? Let's say I have a brand and I want to be a part of your portfolio. What what are the common characteristics and what do I need to do to be part of your gang?
3: Sure, sure. I mean, I would love to have you as part of our general company portfolio. That would be an honor. So what I like to summarize is four hashtags or four words. Um, We really look for purposeful brands, so really brands with a character and a higher purpose. We look for sustainable brands, and that doesn't only mean sustainable in terms of environmental, but also in terms of sustainable business. We look for fun brands, so brands that really embrace their character, do something fun for their consumers, and global brands. So we are looking for brands that have this global identity. And I'm sure we'll talk about this um, later, but um, because we are um, helping brands from outside China to enter China and then Chinese brands going global, um, I think what's more and more evolving is this global beauty standard or a global brand image, I would say. And to summarize, these are the four characteristics um, we are looking for.
1: And you have a hard seltzer brand as well, an alcoholic soda brand. Could you tell us a little bit about that brand?
3: Sure, sure. So this is actually the first brand from our portfolio that we have um, Angel invested in. Um, It is called Zea, um, at Drink Zea. Everyone can go follow on Instagram. We did this, or the founder, Eric, did this because he found that the Chinese drinking culture is super pressurized, especially for young millennials who just want to have a casual drinks or drink with their friends. And um, as some of you might know, in China, there's this heavy by drinking culture where you have to exit during work events or during social events. And Eric asked his friends and his co-workers, hey, do you like this or why do you do this? They were like, oh, because everyone is, is doing it. So the brand is on a really, really nice mission to create a zero-drinking or zero-pressure uh, zero, zero um, drinking environment. And uh, I love it because... I, as a female, I struggle with drinking beer. I don't know about you guys.
1: You're German and you struggle with drinking beer.
3: Yes, <laughs> yes I'm, the, I'm the untypical German. <laughs> and um, I never managed to finish, you know, a beer or a larger cocktail in a bar. But then when I had... Um, my first Zea, actually, I, I had two, three cans. And then my business partner was like, oh my God, Lisa, you're drinking so much alcohol. What's what's happening with you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's, that's a brand with a lot of potential.
1: Z-E-Y-A, right?
3: Yeah, Zea. And um, I love the name. I think it's one of the best brand names I've ever, you know, came across because it's a hybrid, like our team. So our team is very international, uh, from Canada, from the US, but also having Asian Chinese backgrounds. So we are a mixed brand. And then Zia, the letters Z E stand for zero, um, the English term, and Y A stands for the Chinese word ya ya li, so for pressure. So it's really embraced in the name that we are a bicultural brand and that we want to promote a zero pressure world.
1: Alio, is that a party? And they had Zia there and they had several cans of it, different flavors. And I saw one that was cucumber flavored. And I thought I had to try that one. And I have to say, I totally loved it. It's a great flavor of a hard seltzer, cucumber. is great. It's gonna be a hit.
0: Well, here we go, Antia. Not everyone necessarily um, you know, will be able to relate to what, what global beauty standards means. Uh, or what purposeful brands are? They're big words. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on on w- what the global beauty standard is that you know China and the rest of rest of the world are are working towards?
3: You're right. I think these are really you know deep um, marketing marketing words. I would say, um, starting with purposeful brands. Um, why I like this term so much, um, or why I feel like this is essentially the next. Thing that especially Chinese brands have to conquer in order to go global is because purpose for me means value. And um, a lot of brands or a lot of uh, marketers say, oh, um, branding is super expensive. I need this brand video. I need to shoot this and do that and pay all the advertising money. But for me, actually, the branding aspect and to be a purposeful brand is for free. Because um, it essentially means what characteristic of the brand you have. And to explain it very simply, I think, and I think I'm putting myself um, out there quite a lot by saying this, but I feel like Manor, so the coffee shop Manor, it's a very purposeful and value-based brand compared to Luck and Coffee which is which is um, maybe a brand um, how, how how Chinese people would define it at the moment so I feel like um, only brands with a purpose and with a with a clear mission um, have the ability to to really succeed um, at anywhere but more so on a on a global scale so this is poor for the for the purpose yeah purpose driven way
0: just so that people understand as well, I, I don't know if anyone knows of Manor Coffee. Is Manor Coffee an international brand or is it?
3: It's Chinese. Both are Chinese.
0: How is it different from Luckin Coffee?
3: Well, what I love is, so for example, Manor, they promote um, sustainability. And when you go to Manor, um, you get five RMB discount when you bring your own cup. It's such a simple way of doing things, but it really promotes what they stand for and what they believe in. Um, whereas Lock and Coffee, they do heavy advertising. So by heavy advertising, I mean paid. They have um, elevator advertisements everywhere. And they, they spend a lot of money on coupons. But Manor, for me at least, so I'm not a big coffee drinker. So I'm not pro beer, I'm not pro coffee. Maybe I'm a little bit weird. <laughs> but Manor Coffee made me want to drink coffee. And because of Manor, um, I started to drink coffee. So um, I feel like on the one side, it's, you know, the, the, the values they stand for and really stick to. Um, and it's coherent across the whole brand combined with a great product um, that tastes good. But um, where it's in for me is heavy advertising.
1: Elijah, give us an overview of the evolution of influencer marketing in the China beauty category. We're talking about influencers today. What do you think are some of the key milestones and where do you think it's going next?
2: Thanks for having me on the show, by the way excited to talk with your audience and you guys I, I won't go all the way back through the evolution because I feel like i've been in the space for a while but the most significant one actually was the last covid lockdown in 2020 and we saw this huge shift to e-commerce live streaming and essentially since then we really haven't looked back like there was a lot of foundational work that was done in like 2018. Uh, 2019, that was just perfectly primed for this live streaming e-commerce, and you know now live streaming e-commerce I think accounts for over 10 percent of all e-commerce retail e-commerce, so it's huge, huge space, tons of sales going on it, and you know and a lot of brands got really addicted to that performance-based um, sales, and when I think about Influencer marketing before that, it was really, really hard to get that performance sales because there was a strong disconnect between what influencers were talking about on, you know, Weibo or WeChat or Xiaohongshu and the sales that were taking place on on a Taobao or, or in-store and such. And so this was really, really addictive um place for brands to say oh we can exactly measure the what's happening here and to be honest one of the biggest beneficiaries of that were beauty brands they you know they have a really really high margin product so they didn't really care about the price compression that went with massive discounting to be able to play the live streaming e-commerce game properly and so they've really really latched on to that environment And it's kind of created this, you know, self-perpetuating, highly addictive, discounting sales environment for brands and customers. So I think that's really the biggest dynamic shift. I would suspect that it's possible this year we'll also see some sort of dynamic shift. As as we were kind of speaking before this, there's a possibility we're going to, you know, experience lockdowns for another six months. And that also is going to change consumption patterns. And uh, a, probably an even faster and larger shift to e-commerce. And inside of e-commerce environments, uh, we see all sorts of, you know, dynamic shifts. And, and that kind of takes me to like my two big changes about where I think things are probably going. I had a buddy in 2018. He's a data scientist. Join Doyen's algo team, their algorithm team, and when he joined, I said, "So, what's one of the biggest surprising things you learned about Doyen when you when you joined?" And he was like, I, "I'm going to tell you what it is. Here's what Doyen plans to be. They plan to be the video storefront. They're going to be an e-commerce play. They're not a social media company." And I was like, "Really?" Because at that time, they had no e-commerce features at all. They didn't have any of the stuff that they're doing today. And I think that the potential for Douyin to be an e-commerce disruptor is huge. They've got a biohacking algorithm that just sucks users in and keeps them there for way longer than they want to be there. And their potential to be a massive, massive sales engine because of this direct content to commerce play that they have. I think is hugely, hugely important and in an important way that I think a lot of people potentially are underestimating at this point, because pure content to commerce, this retail I think is just starting. And so I think that that's really interesting space to look at. And then the other one for me is, I think China is going to be the world's first sales based economy. So in the West, we have a service based economy. And I think in China we're going to see essentially everybody uh, or a a large, large uh, portion of the population is selling each other stuff. And that's really heavily facilitated through social commerce. And that's going to change massively change the dynamics of how people buy, sell, and generate incomes in the country. And so these dynamics in there are the ones that are most interesting to me.
1: So we're seeing a lot of global beauty brands being connected strongly with influencers and influencers are launching beauty brands as well. For beauty brands that want to go global from China, is this a necessary step? Is having the right influencer model uh, something that's required or is it something they can completely avoid uh, altogether?
2: Using influencers at this point is not An option. (laughs) This is this is a have to. It's it's a must, and and it's first several across from your the fractionalization of like where of your customers' attention and brand's ability to disrupt that through traditional advertising is additionally influencers won the social media game really early on by being social on social media, meaning that they provided value first and weren't trying to develop relationships with people based on relationships are based on reciprocity on people giving and brands are always taking and asking. And so they weren't, and still many of them are not able to build very significant influence on these channels. And so they're beholden to the creators that know how to entertain and educate and build community. I don't think that dynamic is, is gonna change anytime soon. I think it's actually with the advent of where we're going with web technology, it's it's actually gonna become more fractionalized, more difficult to advertise. You know, We know web 3.0 is not ad assisted and, um, and it's going to be even more difficult for traditional brands to survive in that environment.
1: Lisa made a point about the zero to one model of the growth of a lot of Chinese beauty brands that could actually apply to every Chinese local Guotao, local brand that has enormous success from their starting point. They grow the brand very quickly. They get the right influencer models in place. Uh, Austin Lee promotes them for a few minutes and they see this spectacular growth. It's like a firecracker and it blasts and suddenly they're a known brand for literally 12 months and then afterwards they don't have the sustaining power. I, I I totally agree with what you said. Brands like L'Oreal, they just know how to do that. They, they know how to maintain that momentum past the second year. What would you recommend for Chinese brands to do from your experience at L'Oreal? How do you keep the momentum going, and how do you actually turn that momentum into something that could move beyond China.
3: Sure, sure. So because I have been in the beauty industry for such a long time, uh, mainly the L'Oreal group, they do a great job in branding. And I feel like the French um, in particular, they have this philosophical and romantic approach to branding. And uh, bringing it back to the beauty industry, I feel like foreign brands did a great job in establishing purposeful brands or brands that really stand for um, certain things. Um, however, looking at the other way around, and I think this will be a big topic um, coming up, is Chinese beauty going global. Because we saw the not-so-successful IPO and um, launch of Perfect Diary going global. So, And I feel like this is exactly the part that is missing for the C-beauty brands. So I feel like there is things that foreign brands can learn from Chinese beauty brands, especially this zero-to-one kind of growth approach. But then, when it comes to this one hundred year brand or this ten to 100 percent going global, um, it's really about branding and having a deeper value and connection.
0: If we were to bring this back to beauty, right? And you and we've talked about purposeful brands, and we'll go back to we'll go to global beauty standards as well in a, in, a, in a minute. But but how would you apply this? Is, are you saying that a purposeful brand is a sustainable brand, and that uh, Gen Labs is really focused on? the development and the curation of brands or beauty brands specifically that are sustainable. What is it about the beauty industry that we're missing?
3: Yeah, that's such an interesting question. And um, I love that because this is actually the topic I want to really research and find out and find a magic formula. I think one thing that is probably boring and everyone would say, oh, of course, um, this is a baseline is actually the product and the product quality. So nothing... You know, you can do the best marketing campaigns, you can have the best brand, but if the product doesn't convince, then there won't be repeat purchase and there won't be long-term growth. So I just wanted to put it out there. This is the baseline, this is the bottom line. You have to have a good product that has a, um, you know, good consumer or product market fit. I think what the Chinese brands are really good at is is this initial growth stage. But then when they reach a tipping point of growth where they need to go bigger um, or gain more consumers, um, and I think this connects back to what Elijah said um, about the communities and really steering with with content and not just this, oh, selling to you approach, um, because this is what we have learned from traditional retail, right? So why consumers don't go to Watson's anymore is because they have this beauty advisor behind their backs and saying, oh, buy it, buy it, buy it, and this annoys people. Whereas, for example, new retail models like Harmay or Decolorist, the Colorist, they give you the complete freedom. They catch you with content, they catch you with tutorials, or they catch you with a nice retail experience and give it to you, right? So it's the giving approach or the pull approach versus this pushing on you and buy, buy, buy approach. And I think with the um, consumer being smarter, Um, it's the same in terms of the brand. So if a brand only uses influencers to push a product to you, you might buy it once because you like Austin Lee. (laughs) But the second time, um, either the product fails or you find another one that spends more influencer money um, and you have the product right in your face and you forget about the others. So I think the one core thing that brands or, or Chinese brands, in my opinion, need to adapt Is to create this desire. I feel like I saw a really cool quote that says advertising is like asking someone on a date but branding is the reason they say yes. So it's about really um, you know what your core is, if people like you, if people resonate with you and I think that's the magic. But China comes from a very supply chain driven Um, background and product and channel first. But I believe with with more younger people, younger generation, um, also having international backgrounds, this will quickly change. And nowadays, I see a lot of um, very cool Chinese entrepreneurs that are doing things right.
1: And Elijah, can you build a brand with influencers? I, I always wonder that in China, because I find that it's all about sales transaction. It's all about hard sell it's not really about building brands or am I completely missing the boat and there is a very more complicated influencer uh, ecosystem than than I'm aware of
2: yeah at, at this point I mean there's I think there's better Western examples of some brands that have been built with influence kind of like the Kardashians and you know some celebrity brands and such that have had some success there's been less success on this side. And, uh, you know, to, to Ali's point, it, it's true. It's, it's kind of strange that there's kind of almost a profound appreciation and identity created with brands um, consumed by, by Chinese consumers and how they get a lot of prestige and, and, and identity, you know, association from whatever the cars they drive to the clothes they wear and the bags they have and the, the, the wine or baijiu they drink but it doesn't seem to be, there's a disconnect for some reason in the brands they create. And I, and I personally don't really understand that. And, and the influencer brands that have been tried to be created here are also very heavy on the transactional side. So they're really good at like analyzing their comments or taking people into the factory and saying, Hey, what do you want me to produce? But they don't create the love. And, you know, I personally don't think customers love brands. I think customers love the way a product or service makes them feel, or they love their family and friends, and that's why they recommend products. But for some reason, this identity and this love and this passion hasn't really been keyed in at the moment by very many Chinese brands. But
0: I find it very interesting that, uh, yeah, I think they're very supply chain, maybe even almost transactional and that mentality fits, but I find it very interesting that consumers in China recognize LV; they recognize luxury brands, and they understand brand value. and And those are consumers from this market. Within that consumer set, you also have all of these entrepreneurs, or you have um, you know Chinese brands that are emerging. And yet, it seems like we're saying that Chinese brands don't have don't share the same they don't share the same interest or the same ambition in building brand. Or creating that desire as you called it. So I, I just I just find it very interesting that on the one hand, you know, as consumers, they respond to advertising and they respond to brand. And on the other side, you know, when when it comes to building their own brand or trying to connect with consumers, they're they're very transactional and they're very sales heavy or they're very push heavy. So how do you, as someone that you know, that bridges both worlds, convince a brand owner that is inherently not European or, or does not have that worldview to, to kind of invest differently on the brand. How do you create the desire and how do you convince uh, Chinese brand owners to, to build brands differently?
3: I think it's super interesting. And what I feel is if you have to convince someone, then it's probably not right. So what we are trying to do is find the entrepreneurs who already have this mentality. Because there are so many OEM manufacturers in beauty in Guangzhou. And I have friends who have their brand agencies there. And um, to have to convince someone what, what branding is with someone coming from a very supply chain, maybe numbers-driven background, or um, a lot of entrepreneurs nowadays are Da Chang. So from the big, you know, Ali's, Douyin's um, of, of China. And they do their own brands. So these very data driven and data-focused people, it's just naturally controversial or the other opposite of someone who believes in or likes philosophy, um, art. Um, So I think it's an underlying identity um, change. So instead of trying to convince someone, we try to find the ones who already bring this mentality with, because I don't think it's something that you can... Push or pressure from uh, on, onto someone. If someone is not really into um, um, maybe art, you you cannot force this uh, characteristic onto them. So what we are trying to do um, is to find those entrepreneurs who can combine or balance sales and the brand to 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 a bigger degree.
0: Hey um, Bryce, I have a question for you. So you worked uh, a number of years, right? You worked on Huawei. And if we were to change category, and if we were to look beyond the beauty category, did you have a similar experience exporting Huawei to the rest of the world? If you go to places like
1: Western Europe or even Mexico, you see Huawei branded everywhere, and you see people carrying Huawei phones. On the the good side for Huawei, they did an amazing job of emphasizing their quality features. So if you ever asked a Mexican why they owned a Huawei, it was because the camera was good. The downside was is that they never really understood how to build a brand outside of China. They just really totally relied on product innovation. And I'm not saying that that's not important. They didn't really build that brand love that you see with brands like Apple or Samsung.
0: But I remember, you know, um, whether it was Coca-Cola or Pepsi or uh, any number of brands, when they introduced themselves in other markets, whether it's India or China or any other market, Africa, South America, they typically went international with themes that, that were central to audiences or consumers in their market. There is an affinity for Marlboro Man and you know everyone likes or loves Ronald McDonald and, and, and the Colonel, et cetera, et cetera. But do you think that it's part of culture and it's part of evolution and it's part of the evolution uh, this evolutionary process of, of Chinese brands coming to age? I think
2: the brand that I'm most interested in, uh, my wife works for Google as a, a creative brand specialist helping Chinese brands do branding on YouTube. And her biggest client is, is Shein. And, you know, Shein has just blockbuster brand globally. And, you know, they're like as big as H and M and Zara combined kind of thing. Well, they have a beauty brand now that they just launched last year. Essentially Shein is a data company that sells clothes. And so I'm super interested to see what a data company that sells beauty can do. And they're, you know, they're not so necessarily strong on the branding side, but man, nobody can beat them at design and logistics and targeting uh, ads and understanding and creating trends that's one that I think that would be really interesting to watch.
0: What are they doing in that space on trend creation and utilization of data? Yeah. So they use predictive
2: data analytics. So they really combine, you know, they work really closely with Google on using their trend analysis tools and they essentially know what's going to sell before it sells. And they have thousands of designers creating clothing designs and they advertise the designs before they sell them because they can create the clothes so fast that they can sell a small batch. They look at what the click-through rates are. They can push out the clothes that they need to sell that don't that they aren't going to do a run of 5000, they can just do a run of a couple hundred. And they the algorithm, it's just a
0: data company. It's just purely a data company that makes clothes. But if we were to throw that into beauty context, are we saying that, you know, they're going to use data to come up with shades with products that consumers don't even know they need? Correct. That well that is the idea. They're going to try and use the exact same
2: you know, algorithms and tools to create beauty products. And the, the, I think Lisa knows a lot more than I do about the, you know, development and life cycle of products. And some of these things can take even half a decade to create a beauty product, a really fine, rough, refined beauty product. However, she ends in, They're they're doing it. I mean, they, they have the brand, they, they've already started, they work with Google, they advertise. And so I'm really interested to see where that goes.
3: I think it's super amazing because I feel like we have reached now two fronts. On the one side, there's this data-driven, analytical-driven, algorithm-driven insight hub you know, that has so great weapons in a way versus the very philosophical, really brand builders, um, the romantics um, on the other side. For me personally, I think a best of both will win, always. I don't believe purely in this analytical background. And I also think just having this brand and value-based philosophical approach also doesn't work. I think the magic is in between and the intersection of having data-based backup, but also having the ability to create something that is desirable and that needs human brain. Yeah, so I feel like I'm super curious to see what she and will do, but I personally believe in the best of both.
1: We mentioned Perfect Diary a few times as one of the China success stories to export globally. You also mentioned, Lisa, yeah, their stock price is now, I think at 58 cents uh, on Nasdaq Yatsen, the, the parent company of Perfect Diary. I think it started about $5 and now it's dropped considerably. Uh, aside from that, do you think that they're the brand to be the next Estee Lauder, the L'Oreal? Are they the China L'Oreal brand? Is the hype uh, for this company, is it genuine?
3: Their vision or their initial approach from the founders, um, and they stated it very boldly on their website as well, is to be the next L'Oreal group. And they have done certainly um, very major steps towards this. So they have acquired um, the Ondine, for example, and Yves Lum skincare, high-end skincare. So they're doing everything right um, when you look at the data or when you look at the trends or when you look at the whole market per se. However, doing things right doesn't mean necessarily that you will be successful for sure. Um, And I think what is missing a little bit is they haven't really, for makeup or color makeup at least, defined a look. So very simply, if I think of the Korean brand 3CE or if I think of, for example, an Urban Decay or the NYX of the world, if you think about the brand, you immediately have a makeup look in mind. And I think what Perfect Diary um, still has to figure out, and maybe that's for all the Chinese beauty brands, is what is the Chinese beauty look? Because we see it from Japan and Korea. We have this imagery in mind. Okay, this is kind of the face you would attach to K-beauty. This is the face or the look you would attach to J-beauty. But really, um, maybe this part is still yet to be figured out and it has nothing to do with the products. I think the products is great because I actually know that they use the same manufacturers as some of the higher-end L'Oreal group or the a lot group uses. So for sure they have a great product um, value um, and I personally like to use their lip glosses um, very much. So I compare them, the texture, the quality is really good and I have used maybe over 100 brands at least. So the product is good, it's just about how to get over this initial high and retain your consumers and make your consumers want to stay with you. And for Chinese consumers, they always have a lipstick in their bag or the girls I know from Shanghai. And one insight that I've seen years ago is they only put their most expensive lipsticks with themselves or in their bags because you want to pull out a Guerlain, you want to pull out an Yves Saint Laurent, you want to pull out maybe even an Hermès lipstick just to show that you have it because you want to identify yourself with it. And I think the one part, and this is why maybe the stock market or investors do not long-term believe in Perfect Diary is this, this value increase um, of, of a brand because uh, selling product innovations can only last that long. What they struggle with is really
2: upsetting. You know what, in, in the space of influencer marketing, they were actually extremely innovative. And I think it's one of the things that gave them the juice to get to where they are today. The first part, there, there was actually like kind of a few things that I recommend to brands that were almost direct learnings from them. And one of the first ones was, is they, when they ran influencer campaigns, one of their big focuses was to get the influencers audience to create UGC content. So they knew that they could get this amplification effect by promoting UGC content creation. And the next thing that they did, uh, this was a fuller strategy too. Cause the next thing that they did was they they actually really actively worked to engage with influencer follower comments and questions and even comment and question on UGC content and take that UGC content and repurpose it on their own channels and reward people for creating UGC content. And so they created this super, super holistic influencer marketing uh, community approach that was very rich and very real. And then even driving further down the funnel, they aggregated content creators and their own customers into what, you know, we call private traffic channels or private pools now. And I personally believe that that was super, super genius. You know, and it was, they were the first ones to say that, hey, you know, they had a million customers in private WeChat groups with you know AI automation feeding them content or answering questions or stimulating the brands and such. And this was actually, I think, one of the first conversations when I met Lisa back in maybe 2018, 17 or something that I asked her. I said, hey, Perfect Diary is doing this crazy innovation around community management and these private traffic channels. Is this something that L'Oreal is gonna do? And her she very, very quickly responded to me with, we've already done all the research and there was no way we're going to do this because we don't believe that this is sustainable and positive ROI and going to do this. And I was actually really surprised because I thought the approach was so innovative. So I actually think that Lisa has some insight on why that doesn't work, even though it was so novel at the time and, and maybe still is considered novel, at least by, uh, by international standards,
3: I remember that conversation very well. We were in Jo um, in that in that crab restaurant, and um, I have <laughs> I have just done the the research on it because I was responsible for the entire corporate and um, social strategy um, with influencers, and of course we looked at private traffic because they shooted up the Tmall rankings uh, so much. I must say it did help um, our brands, especially Lancome, during the two thousand twenty pandemic. But I think the essential, and this is what we at the end decided, is it's like a CRM tool, and a CRM tool is something very personal, private traffic as well. While it, it failed at the scale, um, I, I think for, pers- uh, for for Perfect Diary, and why it worked in the beginning is because in the first you had this personal relationship with the beauty advisor or the group manager. As soon as the scale goes up to you know, 500 groups, 1000 uh, groups with, with 300 or 400, 500 people, it's really hard to, to sustain this personal relationship. So what we did for our brands um, at that time in Lacombe was that our beauty advisors all registered for professional WeChat and they had their people with them. It's, it's definitely something you know, very personal and um, valuable as a brand asset. Um, but if not done right and if the scale goes up too fast, it's like a robot, <laughs> it's like a robot group. And um, I've been undercover sneaking in those groups <laughs> and um, it, it doesn't really work because it's always the same content. It's always, oh, we have this promotion and then we're back to this push approach. So we have influencer pushing on you. Uh, we have the private WeChat group pushing on you and it's nothing valuable that the consumer can take away Um, there were some groups um, where they had, you know, different approaches, makeup tutorials or skincare expertise. But as one brand, there's only so much you can talk about. And, uh, you know, after a week or a month, um, you you get out of content. Uh, What I think would be definitely, um, you know, worth looking at is for retailers um, like the colorist, because they have a a bigger portfolio of groups and they have much more content to talk about so maybe that's worth something to explore into but as a single brand in today's world going through you know creating your own wechat groups maybe on a small scale but if if you want to leverage this as a bigger kind of um, scale-off thing like a live stream i would i would put a question mark on there
0: we're ready for the famous ab test does everyone know what the ab test is a stands for Ali and B stands for Bryce. And it's a test. Uh, so I'm, w- what basically happens is I, I end up shooting words or a collection of words. And whatever comes to either of your minds first is what you need to answer with.
1: Yeah, these don't really go from a geographical like bias here. So obviously we're testing Lisa's German Chinese roots. And we know Elijah's from Nebraska.
0: Glam Glow or
1: Urban
2: Decay?
3: Urban Decay.
0: Elon Musk or Warren Buffett?
2: This one is hard because Warren Buffett is a hometown hero, but
0: I'm going to have to say Elon Musk. Dr. Hwaschka or Veleda?
3: (laughs) Dr. Hoshka. Uh,
0: Blue Point Oysters or Rocky Mountain Oysters? Man, this is again, I'm going to have to go with the Rocky
2: Mountain Oysters actually. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) It's true. Lisa, Lisa,
0: do you know what the difference is between the Blue Point and the Rocky Mountain?
2: Well, A a blue point oyster, I think you know, is a very refined um, seafood and a rocky mountain oyster is a a sheep testicle that has been
0: deep fried.
3: Mm. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting.
0: (laughs) Baitio or
3: schnapps? (laughs) I'm the most untypical German probably in the world. (laughs) I would have to go with Baitio.
0: Because it's an influencer one. Austin Lee or Sami Slimani?
3: Oh, because I've worked with Austin so much, I'm going to pick him.
0: Um, oh, this is getting delicious. All right. Cheese Frenchies or chicken nuggets? This is for you, Elia. Man, this is so
2: hard. I'm going to go with a cheese Frenchie.
1: And what is a cheese Frenchie?
2: A cheese, well, a, a cheese Frenchie for me is just a deep, again, it's another fried you know, a uh, uh, cheese sandwich. <laughs> it's pretty delicious.
0: <laughs> cucumber or white peach hard soda?
3: <laughs> I want to say both, but um, I feel the pressure because Professor Bryce is such a big fan from cucumbers. So I'm gonna put a special one and say cucumber.
0: Cool or Sunny D. Oh yeah I'm gonna to have to say Kool-Aid <laughs>
1: Kool-Aid was invented in Nebraska by the way
2: It <laughs> was it really
1: well uh, Lisa Elijah thanks for being on the show it's really awesome great talking to you I think we could really talk for hours about these subjects so thanks a lot for being on the show
3: thanks so thank much you for having
1: us and thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode join us next week for another exciting show and to all our listeners until then have a great day